So we know that God is at work all of the time. Even, even when we don't see it, we know that, that God is, is working and active. He's, he's working to bring about the completion of his plans and his purposes. He's working in people's hearts to, to draw them to himself, even if we didn't realize it until it happens. I can remember one day when I was in high school, uh, I was sitting at lunch with my friend who's named Caleb. Uh, and we would, we would sit together pretty often. Uh, we shared the same lunch period. I think we had the same class, so we'd be having regular conversations together. And one day, you know, we're sitting there, and, and he looks over to me unprompted, and he says, Patrick, can you tell me what it means to become a Christian? I, I want to know how to be saved. <laughs> just talk about an evangelistic opportunity, right? Like, he just lays it right there. I didn't have to, like, use, you know, tactics and the Columbo method to try to, like, help him to see his need of a Savior. God was working in his heart. He had been leading him to that place already. He, he knew his need of a Savior, and he knew that I was a Christian. So he comes and he, and he asks me, what do, I, what do I need to do to be saved? And God, in his kindness allowed me the opportunity, the humble privilege to, to share with this brother the, the glories of Jesus, to be able to talk about how Jesus is our righteous Savior and Jesus is the one who is able to make us clean and holy as we trust in him by faith. And would you believe that Caleb gave his heart to Christ and was transformed? God doing such an amazing work allowed me to, to share, but he's the one that's bringing this to pass. He's the one that saved Caleb. And in the passage this morning, I think there's a similar thing that we're seeing here where, where Cornelius, God's been working in his heart and, he, and he, God sends Peter to Cornelius to share a message with him. And we're going to see that the, the message is received with great joy and God works in both Cornelius and his family in a mighty way. And so it's a joyful passage for us to be in. As we, as we look to the text, we're going to see that this, this is our main idea this morning. Because God shows no partiality, neither should we. Instead, we're to share the gospel with expectancy to all people and rejoice in the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're not to show partiality because God doesn't show partiality, but instead we're to share the gospel with all people expectantly, trusting the Lord to work and rejoicing in the work that the Holy Spirit brings about. And as we walk through our text, we're going to, I have two buckets on the, on, the, on the screen there, but really we're going to kind of have three. I'm going I'm to take some time to set up this, this Cornelius and, and Peter coming together, this time in the text when they're being brought together. We're going to talk some about that idea. And then we're going to see very clearly that Peter proclaims the good news is for all people. And then the Spirit proves that salvation has gone to the Gentiles. So again, let's just pray and ask the Lord to lead us as we look to his word. So Father, I thank you. I thank you that we get to read this passage this morning. Please encourage us, your church, as we see your mighty hand in action. Let us rejoice in this reality that you are mighty to save. And Father, that you bring about the redemption, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles, making one people. Praise your name. So lead us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn with me in your, in your Bibles to, to Acts chapter 10. We're going to be reading from verses 23 
all the way through 48. We're actually going to begin in the second half of verse 23, Acts chapter 10. So the next day, Peter rose and went away with them, and, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so Peter opens his mouth and he says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This passage that we've just read, if you begin to think about it, it is it is the fulfillment of redemptive history, you know, at this point, like where the gospel has crossed even the, the last boundary, where it's gone not just to the Jews, not just to the Samaritans, but now even to the Gentiles. And glory be to God, we see that he sends his Holy Spirit upon these believers. What a glorious 
thing we see in this text. It's clear as we look at this passage that God has been doing an amazing work in bringing Peter and Cornelius together for the fulfillment of his plan. If you just think about what was happening, you know, Cornelius is in uh, Caesarea. He's a, uh, you know, he's a Roman centurion. He's a man potentially from Italy. Like, he's a Gentile pagan, but he's also, like, he's, he's seeking after the Lord. Like, he comes from that background. And then you've got, you've got God working in Peter's heart in a different city in Joppa where he is, you know, a Jewish fisherman who walked with Jesus. And he brings these two men together. He brings Peter as this witness, this, this witness who was present at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls on the believers there. You know, he's, he's there and he receives the Spirit and he preaches boldly and 3,000 people are converted that day. This St. Peter who goes to the Samaritans after Philip has faithfully been preaching to them. And he and John, they, they pray for these believers and they lay their hands on them and the Holy Spirit falls upon them showing that they've been accepted. And now God sends Peter to the Gentiles. He sends Peter to Cornelius' house. This is the fulfillment of what we've been seeing as the main theme verse of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, where it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God is bringing about this fulfillment of his plan and he's doing it in a miraculous way. He sends visions to both of them and says, Peter, go with Cornelius' men who he sends to you and preach the gospel. So as Peter and his friends who are these six other believers from Joppa, as those seven along with Cornelius' other three that he originally sends, they, they're walking back to Caesarea. And the text tells us in verse 24 that Cornelius had gathered together his relatives and his friends to hear whatever Peter was going to share with them. You know, I can just imagine the excitement and the anticipation that they felt, right? Because they know that Cornelius has seen a vision from God. And in that vision, he saw an angel, and the angel says, Cornelius, your prayers have been answered. Send for Peter. He's going to bring a message to you. You know, they're, they're waiting hear what this message is. And, and you have to wonder, you know, if you were in, your, in that situation, what would you have been praying for? What was Cornelius praying for? Had he been praying for his own salvation? Had he been praying that God would show him the truth? Had he, had he been trying to understand, you know, this information about Jesus that he's been hearing about? Like, he's been doing all this ministry and, and great things, and then he dies on the cross. Like, what is that about? Maybe he's praying that. And so God... God answers his prayer. He says, I've heard your prayer and I'm sending Peter to you. And so Peter, in all joy, gathers together his friends and his relatives and everyone that he has influence over and he brings them together because he wants them to benefit from this message. Cornelius is practicing, you know, something like evangelistic hospitality. He's bringing them all in so that they would hear the good news of whatever Peter's gonna share. You know, maybe as you think about your own life, what does it look like for you to show a kind of evangelistic hospitality? You know, maybe it's just inviting someone over for lunch to, to talk about the, the Lord, but it could also be secret church like Jeff was sharing earlier where you, you gather people together in your home to hear, a, you know, multiple hours like a fire hydrant amount of just gospel message coming from David Platt where you can hear and soak in and, and be in awe of our great God. But this is what Cornelius does. He welcomes them to come. 
and hear what God is going to reveal. But you see Peter's presence in Cornelius' home as we're looking at those uh, first few verses of our text? It would have been unheard of in Caesarea because the Jews didn't go into Gentiles' houses and the Gentiles didn't go into Jews' houses. As we heard last week you know, through Chris's message, it would be hard for us to overestimate how strongly the Jews felt about the distinction between themselves and the Gentiles. They saw themselves, the Jews, did, as, as God's chosen people. But they saw the Gentiles as those who are on the outside, cut off, unclean, worthy of God's wrath and his judgment. Such was the divide between the two. Yet God has been working on Peter. He's been working in Peter's life. Throughout these two days of walking, God has changed Peter's heart toward the Gentiles. You know, Peter's been thinking deeply about the vision that he had two days prior with the words where God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. He's thinking deeply about what does this mean? What does this apply to? Like, Clearly it's talking about food because he has a vision of food in that, but does it apply to more areas? If you, if you thought about yourself in that situation, I bet you would be thinking hard and deeply about what was it God wanted me to understand and see? How, how, how does he want me to live in light of this reality? And Peter's come to understand that there's more to this vision clearly than the freedom to eat delicious smoky bacon and ham and ribs and all the other delicious meats that he might eat. And in my mind, I'm picturing Peter walking to Caesarea, maybe chomping on some bacon. Like, this is delicious. I'm glad Simon had some. But he's realizing all the more, it's more than about food. God is desiring to do more than just talk about that he's made food clean. It applies to people as well. And so as Peter arrives, Cornelius himself seems unsure of how to respond So much so that he bows down in reverence uh, and worship to Peter, thinking that Peter's worthy of worship. And Peter shows compassion here on Cornelius, but he also quickly corrects him by raising him up and tells him to stop worshiping because Peter is a man as he is. We see this in like verse 27 where Cornelius is, or Peter and Cornelius are talking. He says, stop. And then he walks in and he sees that Cornelius has gathered a crowd before him. It's really interesting. I'm not sure if Peter was expecting an audience when he was going down to Caesarea, but God has brought one together for him. He now finds himself as a keynote speaker at a, a gathering full of Gentiles. And if you think about your own self, I'm not sure how you would feel about that, but if you just showed up at a gathering and they're like, hey, come on up, you're our main speaker, that might be terrifying to you. And yet God was preparing Peter for this moment. And Peter could not have asked for an audience that was more eager and ready to hear the truth. He couldn't have asked for an audience that was more primed and and, and hungry for what he had to say. They want to hear the message that God's laid on Peter's heart. And as I think about this this idea of just their hunger for the word, it, it brings to mind a picture to me of our students at Mission 127, which is an event that we do where we're serving in the community, we're doing like community outreach, but we're also fasting for 27 hours. And by about six o'clock when we're worshiping, the smells are coming up from the fellowship hall. 
And there's a, there's a real hunger there. And when you set the food in front of the students, they will devour it, right? This is the type of hunger that they have to hear what God is desiring to do. And so in verse 28, Peter opens his mouth and he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Do you notice the change there? This is a link back with last week's passage to that vision, but now Peter understands that the vision applies not just to pe- or not just to food, but to people. In other words, this is why I'm here. God has sent me to you to bring a message of life to you. But then he also asks, why did you send for me in verse 29? It's really interesting. He knows he's, God's sending him there, but he's not totally sure exactly what he's to say. And so Cornelius tells of the angel's vision and he says, Therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So share with us what the Lord's laid on your heart. And with that statement, it's like the last tumbler on the lock falls into place and it unlocks. So the last piece of the puzzle falls in And he's finally able to see the picture for what it is. He's able to see clearly, maybe for the first time, that the gospel is for all people. The gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is for the Jews and it's for the Gentiles. And Peter begins to preach the gospel to this audience. So he proclaims that the good news is for all of the people. And we're going to see this in verses 34 through 43. But as Peter opens his mouth to preach, he begins with a stunning statement. He says this, he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so in going to the Gentiles, we see that there is an internal consistency between Peter's theology and his deeds. His head is connected to his heart in his hands. His doctrine is actually leading him to action. He believes that God shows no partiality. Therefore, he shows no partiality by freely preaching to those who he once would have avoided at all costs. Had they been walking on the road before, they would have gone to opposite sides. And yet now he has a heart to share this news with this people whom he recognizes God loves. This truth is echoed in the book of James where we're exhorted to show no partiality. As you hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's chapter two, verse one. And as we look in James two, we see that this partiality takes the form of favoritism based on outward appearances and preferences. And and James says that we are not to practice this sort of partiality. But Peter believes that God is able to make all people clean and not common. He's able to to cleanse them from their sin. And therefore, he sets his heart to love the people that God loves. Peter doesn't just agree mentally, but he acts based upon that conviction. And I think this is really important for us as well. Our theology should inform and it should drive our actions just think about it. If we, if we actually love God's word and we believe that the Bible is his word, 
then we will take the time to read and to understand and to meditate on it and to actually share it with others. If we, if we actually believe that, then that would be true. If we believe that God loves the truth, then we will strive to speak and act both in our words and our actions, even in our motivations. We desire to do that truthfully, rightly, in consistency with, with who God is and how he's revealed himself to be. If we believe that God loves the widow and the orphan, it might look like you taking your lawnmower over to that widow's house and mowing her lawn. Or maybe it looks like you inviting her to your table to share a meal with you so that you have fellowship and you're able to encourage her and share love with her. Brothers and sisters, I I believe that we know and, and agree that God loves the orphan because I see it in your families where you where you adopt children into your family as a reflection of God's heart for the orphan, but also as a reflection of the adoption that he has brought about in us as he adopts us as sons and daughters into his family. Many of you have done the same. There's a consistency there between what you believe to be true and your actions. You see, it's a reflection of God's heart when it's consistent like that. But we must be on guard against the sin of partiality. You know, it's really easy for us to fall into these places of, of tribalism or, or groupthink, right? I mean, there's so many venues online where that can be, where you can just isolate yourself with just people that think just like you do, and you, and you don't hear or really think about anyone else. We have opportunity to elevate those that are like you and, and reject those that are different than you. We must be aware that of those people who would spin and market the sin of partiality as if it's a societal good. We need to be on guard against that. They would say practicing this is actually right. And we're hearing this regularly in our culture. We're hearing often now that we should show partiality specifically because of people's external appearances and their circumstances. Whether they're, you know, it's in elevating the one or, or restricting the other. We're being told that this is good. Frankly, it doesn't make sense to practice forms of racism to combat racism. They're both sinful and dishonoring to the Lord. So if God shows no partiality, but looks on the heart as we hear in 1 Samuel 16, 7, should we not try to do the same? As you think about your own heart, as you think about your own life, maybe you're thinking about some of those well-worn paths where you stick to what's comfortable. You stick to comfortable friendships or possibly do you, do you avoid engaging with somebody that's new, different, challenging? You know, is that, is that a temptation for you? You know, as you think about this, who's the type of person that you might find the most difficult for you to engage with? And I want you to think about the question, what would one step of obedience that you can take to be intentional about changing your attitude toward others and, and reaching out to these people, you know, these new people, these different people, these challenging people, what would it look like for you to take one step in obedience to God to begin to, begin to move to where your, what you know to be true lines up with your actions? That you would reach out to them in love and with hope in Christ. See, brothers and sisters, there is hope 
for our broken and our sin-stained world and our relationships. And that hope is how Jesus reconciles us to God and to one another. He's able to give us a love that's able to cross all boundaries. But we also recognize there is an inconsistency in us at times where we're not consistent in our actions. We're not consistent in our deeds. We're not consistent with what we think and what we do. There's, a, there's so many opportunities where we see that's not our experience. And yet, praise be to God that though we are inconsistent, he is not. And that's precisely Peter's point here. Jesus' blood is able to cover our sin, including the sin of partiality. And he's able to unite former enemies into brothers and sisters. He's the one who breaks down the dividing wall of hostility by his blood to unite us in himself. This is what he's even doing as he's preaching. He's seeing very clearly that God is doing a work to unite two people into one, to break down these barriers and bring peace by the blood of his cross. And so, brothers and sisters, because God shows no partiality, we shouldn't either. Instead, we're to share the gospel with all people expectantly that, that God will work through the Holy Spirit and we can rejoice in that work. And so Peter, as he's preaching, begins to lay out this gospel message, this message of reconciliation to the Gentiles. And I'm going to read from 34 through 43, but I want you to key on these words where, where Peter so many times emphasizes the idea that the gospel is for all, that Jesus is for all people. Listen as I read through it and key in on those ideas. Starting in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were pressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with them after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So again, did you hear that? Where he's saying, God shows no partiality that in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And that Jesus is Lord of all. He is Lord of the Jew. He is Lord of the Samaritan. He is Lord of the Gentiles as well. And we see that Jesus healed all who were oppressed. And the, the disciples were commanded to go and preach. It's an echo of the Great Commission where they're, they're called to make disciples of all nations to go and take the word of hope to each person that may hear. For everyone who believes receives 
forgiveness, verse 43. And I can picture Peter as he's sharing this message. I can, I can see joy arising in him all the more as he's seeing the fullness of Jesus' saving work, as he's watching the truth land on these people that he's proclaiming the message to. But as he's preaching, we need to recognize that one of the truths about salvation that Peter says, or what he, really what he doesn't say, is that the Gentile audience needs to become Jewish to be saved. He doesn't say that. You see, that vision that Peter received was clear that God is able to make any person acceptable to him. So there's no need for them to be circumcised first or to keep the dietary restrictions because God has fulfilled the law by Jesus. This is so good for us this morning because it speaks to us where we are. As you see in this passage, you don't have to clean yourself up to be saved. The offer of salvation is made to Cornelius and his friends and his family as they are. Peter doesn't put any requirements on them or restrict them from hearing this message of grace. And so if you're in here this morning, I would say that that is true for you as well. Jesus is offering life to you as you are. No matter the sins of your past, no matter the rebellion that you might currently be engaged in, no matter the trajectory that you are on, whether you grew up in the church or you didn't grow up in the church. If this is your first hearing of the gospel message even, this is for you. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest and life and salvation. As we've heard before, Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. And it's freeing to realize that we don't have to make ourselves clean. We don't have to put on a mask of being okay and put together before God will accept us. Because frankly, we can't reach the level of perfection that's required. We can't. We can't be perfect. On our own, we cannot reach that. But Peter tells us that God sent his son Jesus who perfectly obeyed the Father when you couldn't. And he gave his son to fulfill the requirements of the law because you had already broken the law. Jesus takes our guilt and our shame upon himself for those who place their faith in him and those who repent of their sins. He takes our sin and our shame away. But it's not just that that he does. But the scriptures tell us that he also clothes us in his righteousness. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. So we can't make ourselves clean. But when we come to Christ in faith, he takes his garments his, his righteous garments dipped in, the, in his blood. You know, they're whiter than snow and he puts them on us. For all of us who come to him in faith and trust in Jesus, he makes clean and pure and holy. We can't do it ourselves, but he does when we come by faith. You see, Peter lays out the gospel to the Gentiles with power 
and authority, welcoming any who would come and believe and place their faith in Jesus. And he's unapologetically preaching to these same people who were not Jews that if they trust in Jesus, they will be saved. As they place their faith in the one who actually accomplished the work to save, they will be saved. This is the message for the Jews, and it's the message for the Gentiles. Because God has so greatly forgiven us of our sins, and because he's reconciled us to himself, this should motivate our sharing of the gospel with our neighbors and our friends as we've seen God's transformational work in our own lives, as we see God's work within the people of our church and other people that we know, it should give us confidence to invite them to come or to go to them and to share so they would hear and that God may work in them and they believe. God can do the same for them. But we also see in this passage that there is no salvation outside of Jesus. Cornelius, who is a God-fearer, seeks the Lord. He's asking the Lord to answer his prayer. Like he's, he's calling upon the Lord, but what does the Lord send to him? The Lord sends a preacher. You see, it's only after the hearing of the message that Peter proclaims that they receive the Holy Spirit. It's precisely through the sharing of the gospel that sinners come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we must, we must be committed to taking the gospel to the places where it's not, brothers and sisters. Whether that's in our schools or in our workplaces, within our families sometimes or in our neighborhoods, but also across the ocean where there's people that have never heard. As God might be laying that on your heart, we take the gospel to where it's not so that they would hear and believe. Romans 10, 14 through 15, we hear these words. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. See, brothers and sisters, Peter's feet brought the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles that day. And upon believing in Jesus, they were brought into the family of God and they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit as the Spirit falls upon them, showing that his words are true, that the gospel is for all. So brothers and sisters, God shows no partiality, nor should we. Instead, we're to share the gospel with expectancy and boldness with all people, trusting the Lord can do a mighty work. And we rejoice when we see what he does. And so in the last four verses, we see that the Spirit proves that salvation has gone to the Gentiles. Let's read verse 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. So just as God had filled the believers in Jerusalem with the Holy Spirit, he now does the same for those Gentile believers here at Cornelius' house. In the presence of Peter, 
And in the presence of those other believers from Joppa, they see God bringing the Gentiles into the fold. See, here's the proof that Peter's message is true and that the gospel is actually for all people. Because the third person of the Trinity, God himself, indwells these people. God dwells in them because he has made them holy and righteous, and they are his. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. For we are primarily, if not exclusively, a Gentile congregation. And yet when we hear the word of God and receive it with joy as we place our faith in Christ, he fills us with his Holy Spirit as well, proving that what he says is true. What a beautiful picture. As Peter is preaching, and and as those Christian brothers are there, they begin to hear. They begin to hear these, these Gentiles proclaiming and praising God in tongues, worshiping and extolling him for his great name. Just as it happened in Jerusalem, God pours out the Spirit, and he gives them the same sign, so it's obvious that they are his people as well. They begin to speak in tongues, and they understand that this is them extolling God. One of the things that's important to recognize as we study this passage is it's not saying that every believer must speak in tongues to prove that they have the Holy Spirit. This was a sign for this time to show that there's a linking between the Jews and the Gentiles. The same sign falls on both. So they are united as one people. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. As he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, specifically in the lives of the Gentiles, he says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God sealed you with that Spirit, who is the guarantee, and he changes his tense here, of our inheritance. There's a linking between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is a a sign. It's like his signet ring placed on you that you are his. And it's a guarantee of our inheritance. Both Jews and Gentiles who've placed their faith in Christ, it's it's a promise of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit shows that we are his. And he will complete his work. How joyful How joyful it must have been to see all of these people saved, right? Like they hear the word, they receive the word, and they bust out in praises to God. All of them rejoicing to the Lord. All of them praising his glorious grace. And Peter asks a good question. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And the answer to this question is, in fact, no. Nobody can withhold water from them. Why? John Stott puts it this way. He says, how could the sign be denied to those who have already received that which, is, that which in reality has been already signified? In other words, baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. It's, it's, it's something that we, um, that, that's pointing to a reality that's already happened in our heart. It's a declaration that a person has already placed their faith in Jesus. You know, and it's, it's symbolizing us saying that we trust in Christ, both that we're united to him and in his death, 
and in his resurrection, we're united to Christ. And so it's a, it's a picture to the world that we're placing our faith in Jesus. So nobody can withhold baptism from them because the Spirit is the proof that this has already happened. The Spirit is proof that, that they are his. And so all the more, let's get them baptized, is what he's saying. The work is already done. So Peter then commands them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and they are. But we recognize this, bapti- this baptism doesn't save these Christians. They already are saved, and they're baptized to point to this reality. So just think about this for a minute. You do not have to be baptized to be saved. Cornelius and his family are strong evidence of this reality. But we also see that baptism is good for a believer. And it's right for believers to practice. And we practice baptism at River Oaks for believers as a public profession of our faith in Jesus and of us being united to Christ, both in his death and his resurrection, that we're placing our hope in him to save us. But it's for believers. We, we don't believe it's a, it's a work unto salvation. It doesn't save us, but it's pointing to the reality that God has saved us himself already. And so if you're a believer and you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you. I want, to, I want you to consider, why is it that I've not been baptized? Is there something keeping me from that? Is it fear or some other reason? And I want to encourage you to follow the example of these Gentile believers, that in faith and obedience to Christ, that you would come and be baptized as a public proclamation, as a declaration that you too are united in Christ. And and baptism is is such an encouragement to the church. It's a way in which the church is edified and built up to see people making this profession. And so I would encourage you, please consider being baptized if you're a believer. But brothers and sisters, here's good news for us. Our God can save whomever he wants. And he's able to cross over any barrier. He's able to break down any barrier between people, between one another, but also between people and God. He's able to break those barriers so that we can have right relationship with one another and right relationships with him. And if you look at the very last verse of this section, it's super encouraging. Maybe it's not obvious why it's encouraging, but I think that it is. At the very end of verse 48, it says, Then they asked him to remain for some days. The believers, having heard and received the Holy Spirit, were so encouraged that they say, Peter, please continue to teach us about Jesus. Continue to stay and help us to learn more about our glorious king, this one who has united us together. And the text doesn't tell us that he does this, but I think it implies Peter stays because he loves these people and he recognizes that they are his brothers and sisters that we are united in one, uh, as one body under our great King Jesus who makes us righteous. And he continues to preach and to make disciples with the hope that those disciples that he makes there would go out and make more disciples, sharing the good news that they have received. So brothers and sisters, I pray that we would be like that as well, that we would continue to, to desire to, to share good news and, and to make disciples, but also to help encourage to send those disciples out to make more disciples. And that we would rejoice together in the work that God is doing. Both in believing Jews and believing Gentiles as they come together united in Christ as one people. There's great hope and great news for us today.
Let us trust in the work that the Spirit has done. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray. Pray that you would encourage us to respond. Lord, encourage us to, to sing in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Lord, please encourage us as we, as, we, as we rejoice in the hope of this passage that as we come to Christ, we are made clean and pure, that we are indwelt by your spirit, empowered to be able to serve you and love you. And Father, I rejoice to know that though we fail many times, that Jesus did not. His work was sufficient. His, his righteousness applied on our behalf makes us righteous. So thank you, Lord. Would you lead us now as we sing? Help us to sing of your glory. Help us to praise your great name. For you are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.